The bill came on a Tuesday. We didn't really know what to expect. We knew if the average bill was $200, we were expecting to pay $150. This is Ephraim Jernigan. Back in 2017, he had solar panels installed on his elderly parents' house. A friend had inspired him to test them out. I found out that she had put solar on her home. And so my parents and I, we went out to her home. We seen the example of how solar was working. So Ephraim knew that solar panels could save his parents money on their electricity bills. For every bit of power that the panels generated, his parents would get this credit back on their bill. And the credit might cut a $200 bill, let's say, down to $150. Or at least that's what he thought. But he wasn't even close to what actually showed up on their next bill. Negative $384. Negative $384. That's how much their first electric bill was, post the solar panels. The credit had essentially wiped out his parents' entire bill and then gave them back an additional $384 to count towards future bills. It was like they got this electricity gift card in the mail for hundreds of dollars. And so I asked him what his parents thought about all this. They said, my child is special. (laughs) Ephraim actually knew quite a bit about solar already. He taught science, math, engineering, and technology in the historically black Sunnyside neighborhood where he grew up, which was also where his parents lived. And he often used solar panels in class demonstrations. But even with a background in solar, the negative $384 bill blew him away. I changed the whole curriculum to teach what I just saw. So he started talking about the bill in his classroom, using it as a way to teach math, and also to share his story with his students and their parents, hoping to get more people on board with solar. And that was about the easiest lesson I've taught in 13 years of STEM education, as far as math goes. But he wanted to know, what if you don't have a roof, or you rent, or you just don't have the money to buy rooftop solar? Even with state and federal tax credits, a rooftop solar system can still cost over $10,000. And there are tons of people who want to lower their bills, and they might want to support green energy, but they can't access this kind of technology. Part of the solution, in Sunnyside at least, involves an oil and gas man turned solar crusader and an old landfill that was steeped in controversy. This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy. Today, we're talking about something called community solar. As a Black man, Ephraim Jernigan dealt with a lot of racism in his life, starting with the Houston neighborhood that he grew up in. Sunnyside sits in a historically Black, low-income part of the city that the federal government had redlined. Redlining was the practice of denying Black residents access to home loans from the early 1930s to the 1960s. And like many other predominantly Black Houston neighborhoods, it also became the dumping grounds for the city's household garbage, according to Dr. Robert Bullard, a sociologist and environmental justice expert at Texas Southern University. In the 1930s, the city decided to place a landfill in the middle of Sunnyside. Basically, white America put this dump in Black American community. 
And it was 50 years of having a dump site in the community that you grow up in. You know, there was a smell, there was an odor. Who cared? Nobody cared. We didn't want it in our community, so let's put it in their community. Ephraim grew up in a house that was three miles from that landfill. After graduating college in 1982, he joined the Air Force. And when he returned to Houston to look for work a few years later, he ran into more racism. I went through the unemployment office and pretty much a predominantly white crowd of people said there are no jobs. Been all over the world, didn't see any racism, but I saw it when I came home. On the job, it was there. Uh, opportunities didn't exist. You know, advancement didn't exist. He left the unemployment office understandably frustrated. But I'm walking out, and a guy stops me. He says, hey, uh, are you ex-military? And I say, how do you know? He said, by the way you walk. So he turns me on to a chemical plant job. That job turned into a 29-year career in the chemical industry, which is also known as the oil and gas industry. On the job, he noticed the lack of opportunities for Black people like him from poor neighborhoods of Houston. And just like somebody decided to help him get a job, he decided to see if he could help others. I looked at our company, our hiring practices. We didn't recruit or hire anybody from the city of Houston. It was predominantly white communities around the chemical plants. So I asked the question, Can I be a part of the interviewing process? And I was asked why. I said, because I want to ensure that we start hiring people from inner city Houston. That's where I'm from. Back in 2005, while he was still working in oil and gas, Ephraim became the president of a nonprofit called South Union Community Development Corporation, which focused on, among other things, skills training in science, math, engineering, and technologies, i.e. STEM, S-T-E-M. South Union started a STEM foundation. And that's really how the STEM foundation started, as a way to curve an injustice. In 2019, Ephraim retired from the oil and gas industry, but he continued doing STEM education for kids, teaching third grade to high school. What's a what? It's what I got. Growing in the air. Beautiful. That was really nice. This is Dory Wolf. She was a guest presenter in some of Ephraim's STEM classes, and she's an energy consultant that has worked on developing renewable energy projects. But she also knew some songs about energy. Like, here's this one about watts. You know, like, electricity watts. Watts don't do any harm. What's a watt? It's a what I've got. Dory wasn't available for an interview, but she's important to the story for two reasons. First, do you remember that friend at the beginning of the episode who showed Ephraim her solar panels? The one who inspired Ephraim to get solar for his parents' house. That's Dory. Those solar panels are what led to the negative $384 bill. The second reason that Dory is important is that one day in 2017, she asked Ephraim a critical question. What about starting something called a community solar project? Ephraim knew that many people in his neighborhood couldn't do rooftop solar. They were renters, they didn't have roofs of their own, or they didn't have the resources to pay for the upfront costs of solar. Or the roofs just didn't get the right sun. But there's this alternative to rooftop solar. Community solar is kind of a brilliant concept. Instead of putting solar on your roof, you buy, lease, or subscribe to a portion of a solar farm. 
It's not guaranteed to help residents save on their energy bills, but it often offers lower rates that protect against rising energy costs. You can kind of think of it like a community garden, but for solar energy. Let's say that there are 50 boxes in that community garden. This is Matthew Popkin, manager for urban transformation at the energy think tank RMI, where he focuses on community solar. And you might subscribe to one of those, and I might subscribe to another, and your neighbors might subscribe to another. In the community solar case, that's the portion that you're getting credit for based on how much generation is coming from those solar panels in that box. One important difference to note here, rooftop solar sits on your roof. A community solar is a solar farm. It's usually nearby, and it sends electricity onto the larger grid that then connects to your home. It's financially supported by the subscribers that purchase or lease a portion of it. Community solar has been around the U.S. since 2007, when the very first projects got started in Sacramento, California. And since then, it's spread to 41 other states, plus Washington, D.C., according to the Solar Energy Industry Association. As of December 2021, there was a nationwide total capacity of 5.1 gigawatts of community solar. That's a tiny fraction of installed solar power in the U.S., but as you'll hear later, with new federal support, it could grow into a larger slice of the pie. The uh, appeal of a community solar project is that it's a really, it's, it's a local tangible project that is a shared investment, if you will. And so rather than one project on one rooftop, it's a project that might be able to serve the demand of 100 households, 100 rooftops. Dory Wolf, the energy consultant, brought up the idea of community solar to Ephraim when something unexpected happened. Do you remember that stinky landfill, the one that the city of Houston placed in Sunnyside? Around the time that Ephraim's family got that negative $384 bill, the city was trying to figure out what to do with the 240-acre plot of land that the landfill was on. It was this relic of environmental racism. The city had placed it there in the 1930s and closed it down in 1976. They capped it with concrete and covered it with soil, but it was still an environmental hazard and an eyesore. And it was also leaking a potent greenhouse gas called methane. So the city turned to a competition called C40 Reinventing Cities. This competition was seeking climate solutions that could be deployed on underutilized land in cities, including Houston's Sunnyside Landfill. So me and Dory Wolf, we sat down and we pretty much put together our proposal. A proposal to turn the landfill into a community solar project. This idea of redeveloping old industrial sites into renewable energy projects is a part of a broader trend in the United States. It's what Matthew Popkin of RMI calls turning brownfields into brightfields. What are brownfields, and what is the potential benefit of using them for things like renewables, like community solar? A brownfield, at its core definition, is land that is potentially contaminated or polluted, and it's often neglected and underutilized. A brownfield could be a closed landfill, as we've been talking about. It could be a shuttered coal plant. It could be a closed coal mine. It could be an inactive steel mill. It could be a gas station that's closed. It could be an abandoned dry, former dry cleaning shop because of the chemicals used. It could also be a, a grotesque Superfund site where you know a company three decades ago was just dumping chemicals into a lake because there weren't regulations or they weren't following them. If you're trying to redevelop a site and you think that there might be contamination, you're going to have to take other measures to assess and potentially clean up some of that before you could actually rebuild on it. So talk to me about how you think 
about ways that we can use brownfields to actually site renewables. Over the course of human history, we've kind of just thought about repurposing brownfields for like, hey, can we build another factory here? Or can we build a golf course or a park? With When you think about clean energy, you're starting to think about a bright field, which is a renewable energy project built on a brownfield. Brownfields to bright fields. We need so much more zero-carbon electricity to fight climate change, but finding affordable land for renewable energy projects is becoming harder and harder. According to this one analysis by Bloomberg, solar energy could require 140 times more land than, let's say, a natural gas power plant. When you get to solar fields, that starts to really start to take up a lot of land. And like it or not, how we consume energy in this country, in the world— in the past and forever going forward, most likely will involve some amount of land, right? In the past, it was where we mine coal from, where we're building power plants, where we're drilling for gas. Those are all land and intensive exercises. Now it's going to be, where do we site things that are capturing solar? Where do we site things that are capturing wind? Where are we building our batteries? Where are we producing our hydrogen? All of that's going to require land as well. Which begs the question, where are we going to find this land? Bloomberg's analysis finds that the U.S. does, in fact, have the land necessary to get to net zero using renewables and other zero-carbon power, a finding that's backed by a lot of major research studies, like the Net Zero America project from Princeton. But that doesn't mean that securing the land is going to be easy. There's actually companies who are dedicated to scouring satellite images, looking for suitable properties. One option, Matthew points out, is repurposing the brownfields, like the Sunnyside Landfill. The EPA estimates over 450,000 brownfields across the United States. And clean energy is one viable reuse for a lot of situations where, when done safely, can be a really, really productive reuse that does not generate further harm and actually makes productive space out of something that was languishing for decades. The competition for what to do with the Sunnyside Landfill received over 70 proposals. Many of them were some kind of solar project, but the winning proposal was Ephraim and Dory's. Once built, it would be one of the biggest urban solar farms in the country. But Ephraim thinks they won because they focused on far more than just remediating the landfill and generating power. They also proposed a whole bunch of other things that Ephraim STEM Foundation was already working on, including that outdoor solar classroom that we mentioned earlier and a whole suite of related shared community resources. We started doing aquaponics, which is basically using fish and water. And so... We've been growing all kinds of fruits and vegetables through aquaponics, so now we're selling fish too. Then you have solar installation development, and what that basically means is we've taught the community how to build a tracking solar ground mount. Tracking just basically means it follows the sun. And while it's doing that, it's charging batteries, And the batteries are running our sprinkler system, everything we need on the community garden. The proposal also included an electric vehicle charging station, walking paths, and a bunch of other amenities. We really think that is why we won the competition, because I had solar on the rooftop, the outdoor, the batteries. We had so much, we had to go the extra mile to win because I wanted to fatten the deck. I don't like being told no. This is an example of a newer generation of community solar projects, something called Community Solar Plus. 
Community solar has been around for more than a decade in the U.S., but now these projects are beginning to add other features to make them more attractive and more valuable to the community they're located in. So I want to get to this idea of Community Solar Plus. I hear you describe it as like Disney Plus. Yeah. Can you just tell me, what is Community Solar Plus? Community Solar Plus is a term that we introduced back in April of this year. We've talked about Community Solar generating clean energy. That's pretty much a given. It expands solar access, and it kind of boosts local economic investment into local solar. And too often people kind of stop there and don't think, well, wait, what else can we do? How do we make sure that our infrastructure can support community-wide EV charging? How do we think about the most vulnerable community members and creating a more equitable access to all of these other technologies, not just solar, but battery storage? Other examples include building solar panels on parking lots to provide shade, protect cars from the weather, and reduce the heat island effect in cities. You can also integrate trails and community gardens, anything to sweeten the deal. And that's why, you know, taking it from The Lion King to The Lion King animated on Disney Plus with a few other extra bonus features is, is really adding that plus in there. So here's the full scope of the planned Sunnyside project as of right now. Bonus features and all. It's going to be 52 megawatts in total, enough to power about 10,000 homes based on estimates from ERCOT, the grid operator in Texas. They divided the 52 megawatts into 50 for standard utility scale solar and another 2 megawatts for the community solar program. 2 megawatts of 50 is a small portion, but it's still a significant win for hundreds of households who will be eligible for discounted power. It will include an agricultural hub for an outdoor classroom, aquaponics, and other STEM education programming, and it will also include utility-scale batteries to store power for when the grid needs it, say, a hot day when everyone is running their air conditioners. And this all sounds great, but what if you're building the community solar project on a landfill? Is that safe? Will the community even support it? Turns out the Sunnyside landfill had a controversial history in the community. Just a few years prior, the city had decided to build a community center on the landfill land, and the community was concerned. Well, that's when all the older people says, why would you build a building on a landfill and all of that waste and all of that stuff's going to come up and kill us? And this concern about that kind of environmental contamination is pretty justified. In another historically Black area of Houston, the Fifth Ward, a railroad company built an old rail yard that became a brownfield. It exposed residents to carcinogenic chemicals, causing disproportionately high rates of cancer in the Fifth Ward. Also in Houston, Black and Latino residents have dealt with disproportionately high air pollution exposure from nearby refineries and ports. So when the residents of Sunnyside vocally opposed the proposed community center, the city listened. So here was an opportunity to fight, and the community came out, they fought, and they said, okay, we will not build the community center on that property. But Ephraim, Dory, and the city were convinced that this landfill could be different. It could be completely safe, they argued, for a few reasons. First, they brought in a solar developer with expertise in converting brownfields into bright fields, i.e. building renewables on these old industrial sites. Our comfort came with the fact that Paul Curran, which is with BQ Energy, that's all they do. Their 12 or 14 solar farms they've built were on landfills. 
So you had somebody that had experience in doing it. And so that's what really provided the comfort that we've done this 12, 14 times. We're going to do it exactly the same way. Paul clarified that there will be no regular public access to any part of the property that has landfill underneath it. He says the outdoor classroom and other community spaces will be separated from the landfill. Here's Paul. The property that was leased to us had two distinct parcels. And so when we looked at it, we said, well, why don't we just put the AgriHub and the other things which will involve a lot of public access over on that other parcel, which was never used as a landfill. Um, so we, we said we really don't want, we don't want people doing their Saturday morning grocery shopping on top of a landfill. You know, that's just probably just a bad idea. So the only thing that will be on the top of the surface of the landfill will be things related to the solar project and the battery storage and the community solar and that kind of thing. But even with all those precautions, Ephraim knew the community would be skeptical. When it all first started coming to fruition that we were winning this proposal, you had the naysayers that would say, I still see clouds coming off the property. Uh, You can still smell it. So it was a whole bunch of myths that were spread. And we've number of times looked for clouds. We've looked for smells. We did an event to uh, walk around the whole perimeter of the the farm-to-be. We did by five miles of walking with air monitors to see if we could pick up anything we did not. Ephraim also organized a community trust board to talk to people in the neighborhood. The trust board was really civic club presidents that people trusted. And that's all we wanted to do is have representation to sell what's getting ready to happen and that people would trust it because it came from trusted people. They held meetings and barbecues and church gatherings to raise awareness about solar technology and the proposed projects, and also to address concerns about the landfill. There are still some people who are concerned, but Ephraim says there's far more community support now, hopefully enough to get this project built. But then there was one final skeptical stakeholder that they had to convince, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, or TCEQ. It's basically the state-level EPA in Texas. We were held up with TCEQ in the permitting process. All of us felt like this could die on the vine. Here's Paul Curran again, the Brownfields to Brightfields developer who was brought in to build the project. The TCEQ staff liked the idea, but they had some serious concerns about digging up or removing any potential contaminants in the soil. You got an unusual situation presented to an agency that really was surprised that this landfill exists in this condition in the first place. Most of the questions we got were from people on the TCEQ staff who said, well, I get it that putting solar on a landfill is a good thing and your plan is well developed, but my big concerns are the condition that it's in right now. But Paul's team took precautions to show the agency that they would not dig up any contamination. We will not be turning up the soil. There'll be a little bit of regrading. We'll have to handle some tree stumps. Generally speaking, we'll do some gentle leveling. So there'll be a little bit of, you know, extra soil over on the left that we'll move over to the right just to make the the site a little bit smoother. But by and large, um, we are not digging in the ground. 
you know, we'll put some concrete pads on top of the ground. Um, we'll put some posts into the ground, uh, but uh, we're not planning to cart any types of materials from the site as it exists today off the site. And in the end, just a few months ago, Paul got a call. There's an assistant director who I won't name, but she said, you're going to get a letter. Uh, and I want to tell you about it personally. And it, I'm fairly, I, I did uh, appreciate that very much. So when they signed off, that's when we really knew we, were, we had a green light and there's no stopping us now. This permitting stuff may sound boring, but if you want to start a community solar project, you have to deal with the boring stuff. We got the first permit to build a solar project on a landfill in the state of Texas a few months ago. Um, and those are boring things, frankly, to the average person. But that's what we do for a living. We understand what boring things have to happen to make this a reality. It's an obvious idea that we're just going to take the landfill, which has no use to anybody, and we're going to turn it into an environmental showpiece for producing solar energy. It's that simple. And I think why it hasn't happened before is that, you know, change takes a little bit of time. But if you do it right, and we're going through all the necessary, as I say, nerdy steps that make it a, um, a reality eventually. Matthew Popkin is optimistic too. In August, the federal government passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included financial incentives for exactly these sorts of projects. Community solar projects, projects on complicated sites like a closed landfill or an industrial brownfield or a shuttered power plant area, there are specific incentives, tax credits um, and other financial incentives that direct investment into these types of projects going forward. And so I'm, I'm really excited and um, you know, that's why I think that the Sunnyside project will hopefully be just a snapshot of what's to come. We'll see a lot more of these types of projects. The only thing left now for the Sunnyside Solar Project is raising the funds to make it all happen, which is currently underway. The farm is headed towards construction, and once it's close to completion, they will start reaching out to Sunnyside households, signing them up for these discounted electricity rates. But before that, they're going to need to put up a fence around the 240-acre landfill, and Ephraim says they plan to hire workers from within their community. So where we are now is my partners, being Dory Wolf and Paul with BQ Energy, we made an agreement that the hiring would come from Sunnyside. So let's recap. First, community solar can help people access the benefits of solar, especially lower energy bills for low-income households. Second, Community Solar Plus is a new generation of community solar that comes with a lot of perks. Things like education, community gardening, shade, EV charging, and batteries. Third, one way to build zero-carbon projects like community solar is to turn brownfields into bright fields. And to build these projects, whether on a brownfield or not, you're going to need community trust. You need to work with experienced developers who've done similar projects before and who are willing to address community concerns and needs. The last thing is be tenacious. It took Ephraim and Dory years of pushing and convincing, full of setbacks and challenges. But now they're hopeful that solar, green jobs, and more affordable clean power are coming to Sunnyside. Everything's getting ready to get started and economics is getting ready to flow. And that's our show. Next up on The Big Switch, we're going to California to talk about electric vehicles and transportation. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. 
This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. Story editing was by Anne Bailey. Mixing and scoring by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank. Theme song by Sean Marquand. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Jen Wu, Q Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez, and our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch. Thank you.